Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Occupy. Uh, this will be this episode is Occupy Guns and Butter. This is the Voices Network, and uh, program note: we're on our backup server right now, so it'll look a little bit different, but should sound about the same. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad to introduce my guests here. Ollie, can you say hello for us? Hello, Terry. Uh, my name is Ollie Ludwig. Uh, I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, worked with the Reuters News Agency for many years, as well as Bloomberg News. And uh, most recently, I was working for a boutique publishing company called ETF.com, which is covering uh, one of the more vibrant pockets of the financial services industry. So I come as a guest of Terry's with some expertise in uh, financial markets, macroeconomy, as well as uh, the investment universe. Well, it's great to get that point of view on the show. Uh, again, this is uh, episode 16, uh, Occupy Guns or Butter. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be talking about guns or butter, which is pretty basic economics. We'll start out with uh, uh, what we're talking about is uh, military spending versus civilian spending. Uh, and and we're, uh, the, the, the recent Trump proposed budget uh, talked about an increase, uh, budget increase, and just as a kind of a reality check, just the budget increase on top of what was already being spent is 80% of the entire Russian military defense budget. Um, so we're going to be listening to a Nobel Prize winning economist. You'll see a link to it, uh, uh, Paul Krugman. Uh, yeah, can you Krugman, kind of explain... Allow me to jump in really quick. Krugman's an important guy. He is uh, he is one of these proponents of uh, what is uh, referred to as Keynesianism, which is essentially that government spending will actually make a big difference in terms of stimulating uh, economic activity and, and and government spending as it relates to the military. Obviously, as as you just said, Terry is very important. I didn't mean to in interrupt you there, but uh, I just wanted to to, to sort of put. Uh, Paul Krugman into context. He is the poster child for this economic philosophy that had its heyday in the Great Depression. Uh, uh, another side of this is I'm not usually, uh, mark this day on your calendar, I'm not always in agreement with, with Paul Krugman, uh, but I do want to say that this YouTube kind of plays him off to be a little off the wall. Uh, again, this guy's a Nobel Prize winner. He is by no stretch of the imagination, uh, any kind of wild-eyed Looney Tune, and what he's uh, what he's talking about that they're almost making a joke out of is, is space aliens. <laughs> but could you go ahead and try to uh, talk about what he's what he's addressing in that video, real quickly? Well, I think Krugman is saying that in 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 the in the event of some kind of major crisis, whether that's a profound economic downturn or uh, as that video, which is, you're right, it's, it's a bit of a joke, but from the joke, is there, there's, there's a, a certain kernel of, of seriousness that if, if, if there were a situation where the government really had to step in, defend the human race, spend a lot of money on amazing weapons and what have you, well, there's really only one party at the table that can come up with that kind of money so quickly uh, and mobilize the resources of the entire society, and that would be the government. And while it may solve the problem of, you know, fending off aliens or what have you, or an economic downturn, as I said a moment ago, um, it, it most assuredly will have a pretty clear effect inside the economy. It'll cause um, uh, people to go to work, you know, making weapons or, or, or building bridges, whatever the government involvement is. And, you know, it's a serious thing. It's happened before. Uh, President Roosevelt tried it in the 1930s, and uh, I guess you could say, Terry, that it worked well enough for it to still be alive, because if it had been a complete failure, I think it would have been discredited. There are certainly people who dislike Krugman a whole lot, can't stand what he has to say. He gets grouped in with you know, the left wing in American politics, uh, but he's the guy who advocates this approach, and as much as he's got a lot of detractors... He's got a lot of people who adhere to what he's saying as well. So that joke about the space aliens is all about getting the government to mobilize its resources, its financial wherewithal, to put people to work and thereby stimulate economic activity. That's sort of the that's the the, the, 
ideal of, of, of Keynesianism, uh, where you get the government spending money so people uh, are put to work and they have money to spend themselves. That's sort of how it works in a nutshell. Of course, when you get into military spending, and I have a feeling we're going to be getting into you know, just what constitutes too much spending. You know, it, it's, it's a fair question, right? You can't be spending all your money on guns. There are uh, other things in a society to worry about. And, you know, the butter, as you said. So, so I, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, you have a, a few questions about that. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, one of the first things you're going to get exposed to in a basic economics course is the guns or butter question. Uh, it's in the simplistic version, and we've got a link to it, uh, it's basically showing one scale, one axis is is total military spending, guns. Uh, the other one would be total civilian spending, butter. Um, somewhere along that curve are the possibilities. Um, that and we've got a link that's showing that picture. But can you kind of uh, give us a real quick rundown of of, uh, of that? That's called the. Uh, Production possibility frontier, isn't it? PPF. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to sort of look at at, at uh, this graph on this link, and you know, have a, a, a flashback to you know your junior high school math class where you freeze like a deer in headlights and think, oh no, you know, <laughs> the axis. That's the y-axis. But the, the the important takeaway here, I think you touched on it, Terry, and it's an important consideration, and that is that there's no ideal place here. Uh, all this space, if you look at that uh, uh, graphic, it's like a, a, a quarter circle. Uh, anywhere within that range is, you know, theoretically acceptable. I suppose what's not acceptable as you look at that graph is either extreme, where every last penny you have theoretically is spent on guns, or conversely, every last penny you have is spent on butter. Uh, there are really no societies that can get by doing that. So it becomes a question of how do you interpolate those two extremes, and, and, and that's where politics and policy swim in that very amorphous zone. But the takeaway here is that when you talk about guns and butter, it's not a winner-take-all and a loser goes home a loser. You've got to figure out as a society how to spend that money. And, and, and uh, you know, I look forward to kind of digging into that a little bit, Terry, to kind of, you know... We'll, we'll have a link there to production, productive efficiency. And uh, it shows that the, your spending is probably going to be somewhere on the inside of that curve, meaning there are other things that, that your budget is going to be spending money on, Department of Education, EPA... Uh, so it's going to be somewhere beyond just that frontier, as I take it. Uh, the one thing you can't do is get beyond that curve, uh, that that's just not on the short term theoretically possible, although over time the entire curve gets bigger. Is, is that kind of summing up that productive efficiency? Yeah, I, I think so. Certainly the pie can grow, but you're always dealing with the pie. So the, the basic uh, consideration that I put into focus a moment ago that, you know, you've got to figure out where you want to be on that continuum of between guns and butter, you know, it's always going to be a question. And to be outside of that, as you said, is, is, is really not in the realm of possibility. But certainly the pie grows. And it has a lot uh, in, in, in the decades since uh, the, uh, the Second World War, which was probably the first time in American history that really, really big money was spent on the military. I mean, certainly the First World War counts, too, but the Second World War looms large historically as a period when, when, when the spending was really, really significant. Military Keynesianism, and we've kind of touched on that, but again, we're just trying to get the basic background here of what we're talking about when you're listening to uh, Dr. Krugman. American, in a nutshell, is saying... Hey, we'll just print money and distribute it to people, and they spend money, and there's a multiplier effect. Uh, even there, it's mentioned in the video. Even if we, the Boston Big Dig, was mentioned, where even if strictly you just dug a hole in the ground and paid people to then shovel the dirt back in the hole, you still would get a, an efficiency. Uh, and with military Keynesianism, they're saying that the spending on the military is also good for the economy. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when you start talking about digging a hole in Boston instead of that, this project uh, that, you know, 
even though it took a lot of money and a lot of time, you know, it, it, it did achieve something. But when you sort of parody that entire project and talk about digging a hole, yeah, there's a narrow point to make about how Keynesianism is supposed to work. But you can imagine that, you know, uh, that joke is fodder for people who can't stand Paul Krugman and who take strong issue with uh, the whole notion of Keynesianism, uh, let alone military Keynesianism. But I will say that, uh, and I hope we can get into this uh during our time together, Terry, that I'm certainly, personally, I don't think that Krugman is a joke, and I don't buy into Keynesianism entirely. So I'm kind of looking for that, a, a, a healthy interpretation of how to make the most of Keynesianism without uh, uh, reaping the worst of it. Because obviously if you're just digging holes and I mean, giving people paychecks to dig holes, that's a pretty ridiculous uh, pursuit. And, you know, it's a good metaphor because, you know, uh, too much military spending, I think history will show. And I think uh, there's, there's certainly some, some points to be made uh, that uh, spending way too much money on anything in an economy is not good. Um, resources are not allocated in any kind of efficient manner, and that is a problem. And, and it leads to all kinds of distortions. We've got a quote, and it, again, the link should be up, uh, but it's talking about the uh, the permanent wartime economy um, that the, the Keynesian military military Keynesianism uh, is actually being defended uh, it has been more in the past, as I understand it uh, in the 1950s we've got a quote from some economists talking about the military Keynesianism was actually born with a National Security Directive, NSC 68, in 1950. Uh, can you kind of touch on that? Uh, uh, on NSC 68 or, or, or just the notion that whatever was considered to be super important in the Second World War got extended out and with some kind of a different justification? Is that, is, is that, is that what you're asking me, uh, Terry? I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, at this point, I think we're just talking about the, the, uh, the quote from the econ paper that was saying that the the, the peacetime, permanent peacetime uh, military economy uh, was kind of born with NSC 68 uh, and, and that was uh, 1950 and we'll have links to that paper and we're going to go into a little bit more detail on it in a in a minute. Uh, yeah, yeah but, I mean, NSC 68 was, it's a, I mean, it's a really interesting paper and it's super yes. well basically lays out the case for, uh, if not the Cold War, certainly the spending and, and the societal effort that would be, would be needed uh, to be brought uh, to bear uh, to confront the former Soviet Union. Um, and it, it's, I guess you could say it's kind of a corruption of Keynesianism, in a sense, because it suddenly gets focused very specifically on the military and on defense. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, from NSC 68, this attitude that we got to be all in to defend ourselves from this threat of communism courtesy of the Soviet Union, it really got people's attention. And it did lead to kind of a permanent wartime economy. And I think when President Eisenhower bid the country farewell, you know, that's when he carted out that term that a lot of us know or have heard, uh, military-industrial complex. Right. And that's a pretty clear reference to a kind of a permanent presence of military spending that really doesn't have anything to do with an immediate mobilization for war, but, but again, what NSC 68, that document from the National Security Council laid out in 1950 that we, we, we were going to have to really be all in to defend ourselves from this threat. So we, I guess really it, it would appear that something went off the rails a little bit at that point where spending on the military just for spending's sake kind of became normalized. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've got uh, about minutes left in this first section. And the uh, there's the the paper uh, uh, from the Economist, uh, and it'll be linked. He's talking about cheap wars, 
and they're making the point that that military Keynesianism has evolved from that 1950 period, and we'll we'll drill down into what NSC 68 actually said, the heart of it, in a minute. But we we do want to stress that it's not the same as it was in 1950. Obviously. Yeah, I mean the, the macroeconomy uh, has changed kind of a lot. A... You have to think, think about the Great Depression, the rise of communism that, that that prevailed in the 1930s, and so something like. Keynesianism, where the government's heavily involved, putting people back to work, you know, that was something that, we, that was super important at the time because capitalism itself was perceived to be uh, at risk. And by gosh, you know, a guy like Franklin Roosevelt was going to save capitalism by, you know, borrowing a page book from, you know, the socialists, if not the communists. And, um, well, a lot has changed since the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s. 1960s, you know, and, you know, as the 60s turn into the 70s, you know, this, this, this there's a corner gets turned. There's an inflationary mm-hmm. spike in the macro economy in the form of uh, uh, declining productivity uh, among workers and also the, the cost of energy, you know, think of the oil crises in the 70s. Uh, right. What I'm driving at here is that the economy is very different now than it was then. It's much more diversified um, and uh, it doesn't lend itself to the same kind of government control. Clearly, the government has a big hand in a lot of pieces of the economy, not least the military, by the way, when we'll return to that. But it has changed, uh, and, and, and uh, so too have the strategic challenges, uh, particularly since the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so Keynesianism is not dead, but I would say it's not what it once was, certainly. And, and specifically, military Keynesianism has also been right. evolving. Right, exactly. As, as yeah, it, it, I mean, I mean, I think uh, I, I would be one to argue that probably too much of money of the federal budget goes to the Department of Defense, and we could package that as some kind of a new age military Keynesianism, for sure. Um, though it's probably a little more nuanced than that. Uh, I think it's pro- maybe just bad habits getting perpetuated as well, uh, uh, or a lack of, of, of courage among politicians and policymakers to, to spend the money in, in, in a much more thoughtful, uh, investment-minded way, which that's a complicated question in itself, because one of the reasons why I'm a little ambivalent about, you know, demonizing military Keynesianism, because there's no question that, that apart from guns and, and, you know, war zones and killing, military technology does trickle down to civilians and there's no doubt that in history and, and clearly today um, were it not for military related projects we wouldn't have you know certain aspects of modern life you know I, I look at my iPhone every day and think you know this is probably a distant echo of you know the Mercury and Apollo programs you know which themselves were you know clear function of NSC 68 and military Keynesianism, right? So it's not all bad. You can't, you can't exactly throw the baby out with the bathwater is, qu- is kind of the attitude that, 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 that I would counsel for anyone who's you know, thinking, good grief, would they stop throwing all that money at the Department of Defense? Well, you know, you can't get rid of it all at once. You have to enter it uh, cautiously. Uh, you know, think of uh, government agencies like DARPA, uh, which is, in, you know, invests in the zaniest research projects, but many of them are just uh, super, super uh, uh, meaningful uh, in, right. in, in the long run. They affect regular citizens who are not, you know, in the uniform military, and they're not in war zones. So, for sure. I've got sure about one, one minute left in, in this first section, and want to go to a drill down on there will be a picture up showing kind of the smoking heart and soul of this 1950s document. Uh, and it, it's got an underlined section in blue. Uh, I can't see it at the same time I'm talking to you. Hopefully you've got it somewhere where you can see the points on it. But it is striking to me how much of this 1950s paper could have come right straight out of the budget proposal that's saying let's increase the military budget just the increase over what was already there, once again, is 80% yeah, no, of the I, entire... I, 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 can, I can sort of, I'm looking at it now, uh, and, and yeah, this is, this is a verbatim from this document that, that Terry and I are talking about, NSC 68, and, yeah. and there are a number of takeaways about, uh, you know, the implications of what NSC 68 uh, 
how it will uh, affect society as a whole. And clearly, all these years later, again, as Terry said, 1950 is when this document was written. You know, we're, we're, we're uh, what, nearly 70 years later, and yeah. a lot of these things still apply. Yes, you know, uh, current uh, events is, was, was, was very striking to me, although, again, there's a balance between it's not really realistically, it shouldn't be guns or butter, it really should be guns and butter, and where is the balance in there? Uh, but clearly, yeah, what this was document, this, this document was a pretty was a pretty strident, you know, declaration of what the society was going to have to do to hold, you know, to, to challenge uh, the um, the uh, geopolitical threats perceived in the, in, in, the, in the Soviet Union. But again, these takeaways they are striking, as like the, the distant echoes of NSC 68, which sort of has, you know, implications on the guns or butter or guns and butter. Uh, discussion, you know, uh, things like, you know, number eight, I'm just picking a few out of the hat, development of internal security and civilian defense programs. You yeah. Know, about, you know, the, the anxiety some Americans have about, you know, possibly, you know, being listened to when they're on the telephone. Uh, right. It's probably more real now than then, you know. Um, and uh, this, this, this idea was first made explicit in 1950, you know, in connection with um, the publication of NSC 68, which remained secret for quite a long time, right, Terry? Yeah, 1977, before it was even declassified. Right, uh, right. So, it, so nobody even knew what was contained in it until 1977, right. Right. which is, again, startling. Yeah. Um, I, I, another one of the points that could be current events is, is they're talking about uh, we will forego other things so we can spend on military. I can't remember which bullet point that is. Yeah, number, number 10, 10. Yeah. reduction of federal expenditures for purposes yeah. other than defense and foreign assistance, if necessary, by the deferment of certain desirable programs. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. And, and, and sure, you know, this, this is the guns. Uh, well, you read number 10 here on this takeaway sheet that's going to be one of the links. Uh, and, yeah, you can see it becomes sort of guns or butter rather than guns. Yeah. You know, when it's sort of presented in such a dichotomous way, uh, it, yeah, you kind of go, "Wow, this is not a new concept." Uh, these these struggles we have to to uh, you know fund you know presumably effective uh, government programs. You know, as a, as uh, you know, I've always thought of first Head Start, uh, the, uh, the the pre K funding program. There's some pretty persuasive evidence that shows that it's good to invest in human beings when they're very, very young. Uh, and this would be, you know, this is one of those programs that has been, you know, long on the defense, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, uh, the military-industrial complex, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the descendants of NSC-68, they are uh, alive and well. Uh, all these years later, though, as I was saying a moment ago, it's not necessarily straight Keynesianism. There's something else going on, just a kind of a, oh, I don't know. I think the DOD is probably pretty bloated. I don't think that's an outrageous thing to, to, to put out there, even as uh, President Trump wants to increase the budget. As you said, what, 10%, uh, $54 billion to the tune of $640 billion. I think that's about 16% of the federal budget. Uh, that's a lot of money. And in yeah. <laughs> too much money. If that, you, the ten percent increase, to repeat what you said, Terry, is eighty percent of the entire Russian budget uh, for military expenditures. Right. That was what the Salon article says, and we'll have the link to that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the numbers may be off a little bit, but still, uh, I think they're in the, they're kind of in the right zone. And, and, and the point being that, boy, the United States of America spent a lot of money on defense. And it's a fair question to ask, is it too much in the context of all the other things that might be a good idea to invest in as well? Well, we're 25 minutes into the show, and that kind of brings us into our second section, uh, the broken window fallacy. We've got a, a video that kind of goes into what the limitations to Keynesianism uh, comes down to, why you don't maybe want to just dig a hole in the ground and then fill it back up with dirt, and that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I'm glad you, you brought the, the hole in the ground because that was coming to mind. But I, I, I think this, this link is a good one. It's, it, it's kind of humoristic, and it presents the pros and cons of Keynesianism, uh, I think, pretty fairly. I mean, at the end of the day, this, this link comes out sort of against the Keynesian approach, right, saying that there are better ways to spend money 
than just having the government throw uh, money at projects. I, I, I think uh, uh, it, it, it's a good introduction to the shortcomings. And as I was saying earlier, I think Keynesianism is a useful uh, tool to have in your toolbox, but I, I, I don't think it's the only tool by any means. And, and you know, this link, for example, it, it, it talks about, it's as analogous to the hole in the ground, you know, some some crazy youth or thief or something throws a brick through a, a, a local restaurant, um, and this is depicted in this little cartoon or, or <laughs> infographic. Well, the restaurateur has to spend money to fix the window, and the money that he pays the contractor to fix the window is going to go back in the economy. The contractor is going to buy some clothes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a certain movement of those dollars through the economy. And it makes the point of, well, a, a, a quote-unquote dumb expense, like having to fix the darn windows in a restaurant, can somehow have a virtuous effect on the macroeconomy. It's a tempting thought. There's an immediate kind of veracity to it. But when you start to peel back the layers of the onion and look at it, well, what if that money was were spent in a different way? Again, this is a good link because it kind of gives you the pros and cons, and in the end, it does come out against it, uh, against Keynesianism, that is. You know, which is to say, going back to this, this example and this link, you know, the restaurateur doesn't have a broken window to fix and, you know, might choose to spend that money that he spends on the broken window on something totally different. Extra and, tables, maybe, or an yeah, addition yeah. to his shop. Or yeah, an investment in, 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 in his business, you know, uh, instead of having 25 uh, white cloth covers, you know, you've got 35, and maybe you're going to employ some more people to carry off that expansion of the business, and you're going to have more clientele and more income, and, you know, you start to see, okay, you can kind of see the, the pros and cons here of Keynesianism or a more what do we call it, a more pure, organic kind of economic growth. Um, and I think this link brings in something really important, that, that economic development, you know, is something that's rather complex, and, 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 and it's, a, uh, it's a recipe that, uh, you know, it varies quite a lot. Um, and I think it plants the seeds of what really can be terribly wrong with Keynesianism, and I think that that... Is important to, to, to it's an important thing to keep in focus because anytime you deliberately focus investments on a certain piece of the economy, even a small investment. I mean, if you obsess about a stock, you know, think about the poor people who do who, who thought Enron was the bee's knees. You know, that's a big distortion <laughs> the whole idea of investment. You know, there, there 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 are really negative consequences to that, and I think that's the truth in Keynesianism and. And, and history has some good lessons in that regard. And I think um, you've got some links here that touch on that. Derek. Yeah, the, the first one was uh, kind of the textbook uh, that's talking about the good thing about spending money on the military uh, was uh, Hitler uh, basically ended the 1930s depression in Germany by spending money on the military. And we've got a history paper there that's talking about that might be somewhat oversimplistic. Uh, the, the, the realities of that are gone into in the paper. And kind of, can you kind of touch on what your thoughts on that uh, from that paper? Yeah, and and I think that you know it's 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 a great example, right? I mean, the the, ger the German stereotype uh, mm -hmm. is that this is a society, you know. The, guilds from the Middle Ages making, you know, intricate objects, you know, efficiency experts, every last one of those Germans. Uh, and by golly, uh, why not um, uh, translate that efficiency to, you know, one of the scarier war machines ever built in the history of the human race? Well, guess what? You start peeling back the onions like the link I was talking about a moment ago, and it, that's not that simple. That... Um, this was a society that was so all in on the military uh, spending that it compromised other pieces of the society. Obviously, it was on a quote-unquote war footing, but it gets more nuanced than that, 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 yeah, people who worked in the factories making, 
you know, amazing uh, Tiger tanks and uh, and uh, Messerschmitt aircraft and what have you, um, they didn't necessarily have anything to buy with their mm-hmm. uh, Deutsche Marks because the society was so distorted by this military adventure that it was sort of a shell of its, you know, stereotypical productive self, if you will. And I think there's validity to that. Again, it goes back to uh, what I was saying a moment ago, that any time there's a distortion in, in, in an economic system, it's going to look a little weird. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's an interesting link because it's irony of irony. Again, it, ter- it sort of turns the, ger- the German stereotype on its head that things were pretty profoundly compromised within that society, not just because everyone was making war, but because the economic distortion of the war machine was having very deleterious effects on day-to-day life that in some ways were um, uh, beyond and in, in, in some sense separate from the actual military adventurism. And that's a really provocative concept. And again, it's a useful lens through which to view the limits of Keynesianism in this sense, in this case, military Keynesianism of the, you know, as it relates to the Nazi war machine of the 1930s and 1940s. About 28 minutes left in the show and the other poster boy uh, for, for using military Keynesianism uh, would be the throwing money during the Depression in the U.S. economy and the real-world limitations that are documented there. That, that We've got a link to that paper, and what were your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's, it's in some ways uh, analogous to what was going on in Germany. Of course, you know, to compare the United States and Germany uh, is, is probably a dangerous thing to do, uh, just because the, the Germans were clearly the bad guys in that conflict, making trouble on every corner of the planet. But from a strictly looking at this situation through an economic lens, I mean, what's the stereotypical tale that we tell ourselves? That Franklin Roosevelt tried through the 1930s to stoke demand in the economy uh, and uh, to create job programs, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it, you know, all of which are forms of, of, of Keynesianism, government throwing a lot of money at a problem, Yes, putting people to work. And, again, the stereotype is that, well, that didn't quite work the way, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the guy who started Keynesianism, John Maynard Keynes, had, had foreseen. And what fixed the problem, again, this is the story we tell ourselves, what fixed the problem was the Second World War. Okay, we went from, like, not doubling down, tripling down on Keynesianism, but, you know, whatever, quadrupling down to make... Hmm. Uh, you know, the Second World War a reality. And uh, the macroeconomy, you know, was just pumped up with military spending. And, you know, you, it's really a great case in point historically of what um, can happen to a society when you're investing too much in one sector. Um, it we tell ourselves, you know, uh, sort of uh, that's what we've learned in our, you know, high school history classes and what have you, that <laughs> this solved the problem. The Great Depression was finally defeated by the Second World War. But when you dig into it, you know, you see similar problems with, you know, that, that, that are described in Nazi Germany, which isn't to say that Americans were starving. They certainly were devoting resources to the war machine. But you get some really interesting economic distortions. For example, uh, people who were working in the factories, uh, they were getting their paychecks. And after the Great Depression, how great is that to get a regular paycheck and have some job security? But the the macroeconomy was so distorted that, guess what? It turns out you can't really buy that much or you can't really buy what you want with that paycheck because the economy is so distorted by its military expenditures that there are literally uh, there's a lack of availability of, uh, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, toys or, 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 or even, you know, basic staples. Again, it's not starvation, but these are economic distortions that are related to spending too much in one sector of the economy. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting to look at that way and to revisit this idea that, you know, the, all the military expenditures fixed the Great Depression. Um, 
certainly put money in people's hands, but what are you going to do with all that money if there's nothing to buy? That's kind of, in the simplest sense, what we're talking about. And therein lies the bugaboo of Keynesianism, that, you know, when you spend too much on one thing, uh, it distorts the economy and creates problems that maybe you didn't foresee. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, we can scratch our head and say, why is, you know, the current administration in Washington raising the defense budget when there's so much else to, to, to invest in and when the U.S. military is, is already so much bigger than every other military on the planet, um, there are distortions societally that can result from too much expenditures in one sector of the economy. And, and, and this, this link really digs into that. And, again, it kind of turns the stereotypical story on its head and I personally am always uh, delighted to have some of my understanding challenged. You know, I may end up and say, no, I disagree with that, but I love to hear the argument. And in this case, it's, uh, it's illuminating. Again, it We've may- only, only got 24 minutes left in the show. And the, uh, I guess the point we're trying to get to is we've gone from a super simplistic flat curve, guns or butter, well, that's not going to work. It's a little bit more complicated than that, and and we find out there's other choices, and those choices cause other choices. And I guess that brings us back to if we get out of the ivory tower of just straight economics, which is kind of where I tend to look at things, and you have a much more nuanced view of that because you're coming out of the real world of financial reporting. Uh, I guess the question I'm seeing here is what are the financial reporters are they beginning to see a problem uh, with with the spending patterns that we're seeing? And what? How do financial reporters, real financial reporters like you, cover these stories? And I guess Enron's a good example on that. Um, yeah, well, en- Enron uh, is an interesting example because that's that, that that's a that's one example of uh, of uh, you know an, an instance when when in this instance a financial journalist really. Uh, took on, you know, the establishment and, uh, you know, pointed out something really, really wrong, you know, namely, you know, inventing uh, businesses, concealing failing businesses on a balance sheet. Uh, More the exception than the rule in financial journalism, uh, I would say, by and large. And I don't want to generalize about, you know, what media, you know, uh, has the best scoops. I think we live in an era of media now when uh, we're, we're kind of all over the place as a society. And and I personally, uh, I would read, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the mainstream media, you know, your Washington Post, your New York Times, you know, your Los Angeles Times. But, you know, I'm also going to dabble in, you know, London Economist, which is right of center. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to read, you know, the Weekly Standard. I want to know what people are thinking. So I, I don't want to come here and, and say that I've got, you know, I, I've got the, uh, I can unlock the mysteries of uh, fake news and, what, and what's real. I think we all have to do our homework. That's the reality. And as it relates to financial news, you know, most financial journalists, you know, they're just doing their jobs, you know, reporting quarterly earnings and what have you. Um, But occasionally you get a standout. You mentioned Enron, uh, uh, a a journalist by the name of uh, Bethany McLean. She broke the story. This was going back to 2000. We all remember Enron. It's spectacular failure. And, you know, that was... That was a tough road to hoe. I mean, she's she's yeah. a hero in financial journalist circles because uh, you know that was not an easy thing to do. You know, she was pressured, demeaned, intimidated, threatened, uh, but in the end, she was right. You know, she was digging into the numbers on the balance sheet of Enron and uncovered something spectacularly wrong with that business. And you know, was at the time I think the biggest uh, bankruptcy in the history of, of, of capitalism. Period since been passed up but um <laughs> you know I, I think records are made to be broken yeah now now what what do financial journalists think about you know what's going on in in the in in, in the defense sector you know guns or butter i mean that's that's a tough question to answer i think by and large uh you know journalists are not necessarily asking themselves that question you know the real pure financial journalists some business journalists are but it, again, it depends on your political bent. You know, there are different ways to view this. And I think, you know, the continuum, going back to that graph at the beginning, it's important. Do you want to spend uh, your money on guns or butter? Uh, or, uh, and, and if it's going to be guns and butter, well, how many guns and how much butter? And th- this is a function of very, you know, uh, ongoing 
deliberate, you know, difficult even discussions in a society. So, you know, to that extent, you know, if I'm going to represent some kind of a fair perspective here with regards to how business journalists look at it, well, I think there, there are different ways. I mean, if you're, if you're an investor and you want to, you know, take a stand on what's going on here with the Trump budget, you know, there are different ways to do that. And I think, you know, one thing that I would say to your listeners when it comes to the investment markets, that there's been a lot going on in the investment markets in the last 25 years that has made it better for basic individuals to uh, to invest if they have a choice, uh, if they have the luxury to be able to invest. And um, what I'm alluding to, uh, in 1993, there was a new kind of a fund that was brought to brought to market called the exchange traded fund and it really in my judgment democratized investing it's kind of a mutual fund it trades uh, all day long kind of like a stock uh but uh exchange traded funds or etfs as they're called like mutual funds they can be full of you know dozens and dozens of individual securities so with one click of a mouse on an online brokerage for example you could own a security that owns even hundreds of stocks and uh, for very cheap compared to yesteryear. So I would say that if you have an opinion about this guns and butter issue, I think that, that exchange traded funds, again, ETFs, are a good way to dig into that. Um, and again, some people would be horrified at this, you know, 10% increase in the budget, horrified that we spend $640 billion a year on the military, 16% of the federal budget, and will want to kind of stand in the way of that. And guess what? For activist investors who have that axe to grind, there are ways to do it. Uh, One of the links that I wanted to uh, share with your listeners um, is just let's just throw up a chart of, uh, you know, when we talk about defense, what are we talking about? This chart that I'm looking at has a bunch of individual companies. uh, Yeah. Boeing, Lockheed Martin, United Technologies, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, L3 Technologies, Rockwell, Raytheon. These are all names that probably a lot of Americans have heard. Right. Uh, and, you know, they're going to be arguably uh, beneficiaries of an increase in the budget. So if you, you know, want to profit from that, you could jump in and buy those individual stocks. But um, on the other hand, if you are, you know, not inclined to be supportive of this you could you could invest in ways that might discourage allocation of capital to those companies i think it's probably first of all important to kind of look at this next link of just how you know we look at the market we know like you might be at the supermarket and you'll see some headline that says dow jones you know plunges you know whatever 200 points you know what's going on or conversely it's gone up you know 10 percent since trump's election and the president is crowing about how great the economy is um, you know, we look at the U.S. markets through these large representations of the markets, you know, the Dow Jones being one of them. I personally think the S&P 500 is probably the most useful one to look at because it's 500 of the biggest U.S. companies. Uh, but, again, you can take that S&P 500, and, by the way, there is an S&P 500 ETF out there. In fact, there are three. Is that one of the lines on that graph? Yes, it is. It is a turquoise line uh, on, okay. uh, on the uh, the, uh, the U.S. market overview. And, uh, you know, whether it's going up or down in this graph is, you know, of secondary importance. What I really wanted to convey is, that, you know, when we talk about the U.S. stock market, we often talk about the S&P 500. Right. Uh, and this is kind of mysterious to the people who aren't uh, working in the finance industry. Uh, so any kind of an insight you can start giving us into the real world here, that that, that is greatly appreciated. Well, uh, the first one I would give, and I touched on it a moment ago, I probably glossed over it really quickly, but again, if you're, you know, chit-chatting with, with, with friends, you know, uh, or, or uh, you know, going, in, going through the checkout stand at the supermarket and you, and, and you see some reference to the market, it's probably going to be the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Well, I'm here to tell you that particular way of looking at the market is you know it's not useless but it's not the best one i again would would say go out of your way to to kind of see what the s p 500 is doing it's a much more thorough rigorous look at the u.s market it's not everything but it's a wonderful proxy much better than the dow jones industrial average and even though they move similarly day in and day out over the arc of time the s p 500 will tell you a lot more meaningful information about what's going on in the economy again 
500 of the biggest U.S. companies. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, on the other hand, is just 30 companies and concentrated mostly in the industrial side of the economy, you know, the big the big manufacturers and what have you, of, of heavy equipment, right. for example. Now, if I'm staking my claim and saying the S&P 500 is the way to look at the market, okay, what if you are an investor who says, boy, I really like this budget that Trump is, 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 uh, is, is uh, proposing. I want to get a piece of the action. Well, through the exchange-traded fund uh, universe, which has expanded uh, immensely since the first one was brought to market um, almost 25 years ago, you can, you can own all kinds of exchange-traded funds. You, you could actually put together, and I'll repeat this because this may be hard to grasp, the S&P 500, that turquoise line that we're looking at. Right. You, you could, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? You could deconstruct it, Terry. You okay. Could, you could buy 10 different funds that are comprised of pieces of the S&P 500 and reconstruct the S&P 500 yourself. And that's another link that I threw up here. So and The industrials, that you mentioned DJ, Dow Jones Industrials. And industrials is one of the components that you can break out in S and P. Is that why we're getting yeah, a more the nuanced look here? Yeah, the been organized uh, for about almost for the past twenty years when this, the system was made completely formal and people started to look at the markets this way. Relatively recent again. Uh, the S and P five hundred is, is, is chopped into eleven discrete, what they call sectors. Uh, right. Uh, industrials. You mentioned that a moment ago. And by the way, when we say industrials in the context of the S&P 500, that's not the same as the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's similar, but it's not the same thing. So right. industrials, you know, industrial materials, energy, you know, the Exxon Mobiles of, 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 of the world, you know, consumer staples, you know, the, like, like stuff you might buy at uh, Target or Walmart, you know, um, health care, you know, hospitals and, and medical device makers, utilities that produce energy, financial companies like Citigroup or... Uh, uh, Bank of America, um, consumer uh, cyclicals, you know, um, uh, uh, things like uh, um, consumer products that are more, you know, uh, on the uh, on the discretionary side, you know, like like a big car or something like that. Um, right. If you were really thinking, gosh, I I I, I want to participate in this Trump uh, budget. In a, in, you know, make money off of it or something. Instead of buying an individual company like Boeing, like the chart that I showed a moment ago, if you bought an individual fund of the industrial components within the S&P 500, those kinds of funds exist in the current financial marketplace. They're available. They're, they're relatively inexpensive. You could own just that piece of the S&P 500 and, you know, not bother with all the rest of it. Whether that's a good idea or not, that's a different issue. But just for just for the sake of saying it can be done, guess what? It can be done. Now let's say let's say someone says, "I can't believe you. You believe that Trump should invest all this extra money in in the U.S. military when, at a time when we scarcely need it." I disagree with that completely. Well, guess what? You could put together the whole S and P 500 by buying all the different sectors except for industrials. And that's your way of saying, I disagree with the president. I'm going to sort of keep my money away from those companies like Raytheon. But I'm going to own the rest of the S&P 500 because I believe in the U.S. economy. So, again, you could put together the S&P 500 by owning all those individual sectors and then deliberately neglect to purchase the industrial sector because you disagree with the president. Is that making sense? Am I, am I going off the rails? Yes, yes. So, and it's fascinating. It's 11 minutes left. Uh, it isn't just people who are have the money to invest in the stock market, but people who have their retirement programs. If they're in a labor union, uh, they get to vote on their labor leadership. And, and how are they? Those are huge amounts of money. Um, how are they invested? How is that performing? Can you kind of touch on these graphs that we'll throw up the links to? You can You can kind of use that to get a better view of what, you particularly, you said, increased democratization, more individual yeah, well, powers. You know, I mean, this is almost you know the subject of a whole different show. Yes, you know, really we just want to touch on what the, what the modern investment markets look like. But I mean, here's 
here's the problem with what you just asked, Terry, because when you work for a union uh, or, you know, a company and you have access to, let's say, a 401K, uh, or if you work for a uh, you know public sector company, if you're a teacher or something, you might have what's called right. 403B. Those particular investment programs, they have they have certain choices. Right. So you won't necessarily have the flexibility to do what I just described. Uh, but you do have a vote a lot of the time on who your leadership is that's making those choices. It's kind of uh, at least yeah, you have more control. Say, look, at, I, I have a pr- I have a big problem with you having this fund among the ones that we get. Yes, to you could certainly. Yeah, whether you'll be listened to, that's a whole different consideration. Yeah. <laughs> Theoretically, sure. Um, now the other thing, where you can get back into what I was talking about a moment ago. You know, plenty of people in this country have changed jobs. So. Right. When you change jobs, you obviously are no longer uh, contributing to a 401k that you had uh, contributed to in your previous job. And you can take those assets that you've already accumulated and roll them into what's called an individual retirement account where you have complete control. It's, it's structured similar to a 401k insofar as, you know, it's, it's, it's tax-protected dollars until you take your money out. Um, but if you take the money from a former 401k and just open your very own individual retirement account at you know some online broker, um, then you can do what I was talking about, and, and you can drill into these different you know exchange traded funds, for example, and begin to be more activist about how you're going to invest your dollars. So, again, as I said at the beginning, maybe a little bit ambitious for me to talk about these, these things because they're very complex, and you know even what I just said wasn't a full representation of all the nuances that exist in this universe. But the the key takeaway here is that there is a clear trend where investors are being more empowered to do the right thing uh, on their very own, actually, if they choose to. Yeah, and you said uh, well, before the show you were talking about the individual investors tend to have a better track record. In fact, you talked about a just straight random choice can be better than yeah, the quote-unquote experts. Yeah, that's not exactly what I said, but what I said is that academic research is pretty clear on this issue that um, if you just buy the S&P 500, again, as I said a few minutes ago, the S&P 500 is a pretty good representation of the American stock market. Right. Not everything by any means, but if you want to talk about a proxy that reflects how the American stock market is doing, the S&P 500 is pretty darn good. And guess what? About two-thirds of the time, it actually does better than the hyper-trained professionals who are trying to do better than the S&P 500. That's of those counterintuitive. And, you know, some people just, you know, I, sometimes I say that to folks, and they go, that's not true. And, you know, I suddenly look like some kind of a heretic who's trying to... <laughs> well, we're used to that on this show. Turn, ...turn the world inside out. But no, and again, this is... this is There are clear uh, data series that demonstrate this time and again. Um, there was a famous uh, uh, image that was carted out by a financial academic by the name of Burton Malkiel, and, uh, and what I consider to be one of the classic books for a- anybody who wants to know about investing ought to read called The Random Walk Down Wall Street. Uh, he basically uh, doesn't propose. He's, he kind of humorously carves out this, this imagined chimpanzee who's throwing darts at the uh, stock price pages of a newspaper from yesteryear and, you know, throws enough darts at the wall to, you know, come up with a an investment fund with a lot of different stocks in it. And guess what? The chimpanzee, most of the time, is doing better than the professional who was trained, you know, at uh, you know the Kellogg School or Harvard Business School or the Wharton School. That's not, I'm not making that up. We'll have a link to that. Uh, we've got yeah, about well, five minutes left in the show. Uh, yeah, so, you know, again, imagine that you have the, wherewithal to express your most fervent opinions about this entire question that Terry and I have been discussing here. Guns and butter, military Keynesianism, you know, you can be red in the face, angry that we're spending too much, or you can get even. 
as I said earlier, and I think you and I are in agreement about this, Terry, that the notion that, you know, military spending is bad, I think, is silly. The point that I would make is that too much military spending is bad because it distorts the, the macroeconomy. It doesn't allocate resources in an efficient manner. Right. Now, when we look at the history of military spending, there have been clear instances where uh, civilians end up benefiting from that. And going back to my discussion about, okay, let's take the S&P 500 and let's cut it apart into its 11 constituent parts and let's pick the parts that are going to do the best in the event that President Trump gets his way and gets that 10% increase to the tune of $54 billion, you know, bringing the grand total to $640 billion. Love it or hate it, there is a way to profit from this in a way that might be quite shrewd. I would submit that one area of the macroeconomy that is doing super well, has been doing super well for a lot of years, since, you know, Steve Jobs is putting things together in a garage in, in, in you know, uh, Santa Clara Valley, California, and that's technology. If you were to okay. own a technology fund, I think you're going to get a piece of the Trump uh, military budget, for sure. And moreover, you're going to get all kinds of other action that's going on, not only in the U.S. economy, but the global economy. And guess what? You could do that. You could own an ETF that focuses only on the technology piece of the S&P 500. So these are credible companies that, you know, you've heard of, IBM, for example, and a host of others. Uh, and, boy, that's a pretty good way to, um, to profit from something that you, you know, you may have some reservations with too much military spending. So you could, in the current financial markets, own companies that, you know, will benefit from this in a really, you know, interesting way. I mean, I'm looking at a list of the companies that are in a technology fund, uh, companies that are in the S&P 500 that can also be acquired, purchased by, uh, individual shareholders in a separate sector fund. Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, AT&T, Cisco Systems, Intel, Oracle, uh, Qualcomm, Texas Instruments. You know, you can own a fund that, that, that zeroes in on those, and you, you can bet there are going to be subcontractors on this defense project, right? And, again, if you like the idea of, you know, the F-35, the new fighter jet that, that the United States is building for the next generation – then you could buy uh, industrials that have, you know, Lockheed Martin, uh, that have Boeing, that have Raytheon. Um, Got about so, two minutes left, and, and it kind of circularizes us back to the real world we already talked about, that the, the individual choices are better than a centrally directed. That's one of the reasons why the broken window fallacy is a fallacy. And the second part of that was we were talking about German military spending, uh, one of the things they spent money on was the Pinamundi rocket program. And basically, we're talking across a satellite that is a dual-use technology of rocket technology. In the last uh, last two minutes, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I touched on it a moment ago that uh, we can uh, really abhor warfare. Clearly, from a humanistic perspective, it's deeply problematic. But some of the technologies that have been used in battlefields uh, have ended up having applications that could not have even been imagined, probably, at the time when they were initially created. So for that reason, I find it personally difficult to be entirely hostile to uh, military expenditures that may be even distorting the macroeconomy a little bit, because... There is good that comes out of it, most assuredly. And it's hard to, you know, calibrate exactly, you know, going back to that graph that we laid out at the beginning of our conversation, Terry, it's hard to know where you should be on that continuum between guns and butter. You certainly can't be all guns. You certainly can't be all butter. But it comes down to allocating resources within the society, within a macroeconomy, in a way that, you know, hopefully maximizes where a particular society ought to be. And I think as individuals... In 2017, we have more choices to participate in the allocation of capital than we ever did before. And hopefully we have a, you know, a couple extra dollars to maybe buy a technology sector fund uh, or, an, or an industrial sector fund or the entire S&P 500. 
But the point is we really do have choices. So the world is not going to hell in a handbasket. I take strong issue with that assertion that, you know, we may have loads of problems, but there's much to recommend, you know, the way technology has affected the world in a positive way. That's uh, all the time we have for this show. We really hope we can get you back. It's fascinating to get a more nuanced view of what's really going on than our little two-dimensional silly graph. Um, thanks again, Ollie. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us, and we look forward to having you back again real soon. Well, thanks for having um, me, Gary. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to, to chat about all, all this stuff. Very, very interesting stuff, and very, very important too. Thanks again. Bye bye.